Well, happy Sabbath to everybody and uh, welcome to another heart-stopping, thrilling class in the bunker. This is a little bit different, I think, in the fact that uh, for some churches, for some wars, we have people starting to go back uh, to church 50 at a time or from A to E gets to go this week and, you know, F to Z goes next week, however your ward is choosing to do it. And for other places, uh, you're still in the bunker with us. So a special thanks to those of you who are still taking out uh, a part of your Sabbath day uh, to, to spend a few minutes with us. Uh, or the nice thing is, in the way that we do this, uh, you can watch it later in the week. Um, just a continual reminder... What we're doing also is archiving, continuing to archive these classes uh, on a YouTube channel called uh, LDS Class Discussions with Kevin Hinckley, and you can just look on YouTube uh, and go right there and, and be able to go back. Or, uh, again, the listen to the podcasts uh, on Apple Podcasts under the same name. We're everywhere. Uh, you can't get away from us, and here we are. Um, Okay, so as, as we get started, uh, and of course we're, we're recording this at a time when we're still bat battling COVID and the masked culture that we're trying to struggle with, and at the same time we're getting all of the, the terrible, painful uh, racial divide and, and, and struggles that are coming uh, with that. Um, now, I have mentioned over and over that one of the, the scholars that when it comes to the New Testament, especially to Paul, uh, that I, I uh, value and love uh, uh, almost above everybody else is a wonderful man by the name of N.T. Wright, uh, who is, who is uh, prominent, and his voice is a pretty special voice in a sea of voices about the New Testament. Um, Somebody asked N.T. Wright about the current pandemic and what he thought about this. And I think kind of what they were saying is, isn't this it? Isn't this, or isn't this what's about to happen? Isn't this the second coming? Isn't this a, you know? Um, and N.T. Wright, in his opinion, here, here was his response. This pandemic is not what God, what, what God being in control looks like. The, the Gospels are all about the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like when God is in charge of something. When God is taking charge, it doesn't look like we thought it would. Remember what he's referencing for, for Jesus and then for Paul in little house churches around the Mediterranean, this was God taking charge in a little house church where hearts were being changed and the Romans continued on with what they were doing and the world kind of continued and the kingdom of God was slowly growing organically in the hearts and minds and thoughts and behaviors of the people. And what N.T. Wright is saying is what someone's saying, well, isn't the pandemic, this is the big one? He goes, this isn't exactly the way it generally looks like when God's in control. We can say, yes, yes, what about the droughts and things? He's saying, I know about the droughts, 
but generally just understand when God's in control, it's a pretty quiet thing and it grows quietly uh, and it grows in the right places in our heart and not necessarily being slapped upside the head uh, like it is in a pandemic. So that's, that's his thoughts on the matter. We can all struggle a little bit about what we think we're seeing. Uh, I like his stuff a lot and I, I tend to really uh, go with that. Now, <coughs> along with that then, um, I had, uh, I had someone in my office the other day who said, and I, and I hear this a lot, and it was in regards to a very traumatic, painful thing that was happening in their life. And they said something that I think we have maybe all said at a time, kind of a human thing to say. Huh. I wonder what it is that I'm supposed to be learning from this trial. Now, again, it's a very human thing to want to take pain in our life and, and give it some meaning. It's what Viktor Frankl wrote about after his concentration camp experience when he talked about uh, trying to make sense and, and make meaning. Uh, so it's like man's search for meaning. Why did I suffer the way that I suffered? Because if I get an answer, I can put up a trial a little bit more if I've got a reason behind it. Otherwise, it's pain without reason, and that's harder to handle. So I would rather put a reason on it. Um, the, the struggle that I've always had kind of with this idea is what I'm supposed to learn from it is that it has some tentacles out to some places that aren't quite as comfortable, I think. And in, in essence, part of what it's saying when we say that is I needed to learn something. There was a lesson I was supposed to gather. I'm not learning it. So tribulation or trial or trauma or cancer or, or death or whatever was sent to me, sent to me so that I would finally learn the lesson I needed to learn because I wasn't going to learn it in any other way. In essence, what we're saying is who would send trial? Who would send tribulation? Well, we're saying God would send tribulation. So if we really state what we're saying without always necessarily thinking what we're saying is, I wasn't learning what I was supposed to do, so God sent me adversity and trial, and that was so I would finally learn the lesson. It's always one of those times in classes when I say to people, hey, uh, anybody want to pay for patience? And everybody goes, oh, no, no, we don't want to pray for patience. We know what that means. God's going to send us trial. So we don't pray for patience. We're just grateful for what we have. Uh, but we're trying to learn the lesson. Because if we'll learn the lesson, we can make the pain stop. And and we're always, again, we're we're tying that link to say, I need to learn learn a lesson. Therefore, God sends us trial and tribulation. Um and, and especially now, we might say, well, is the world deserving this? Or we've become so wicked. Uh, is this another Sodom and Gomorrah? Uh, is, you know. And I think we have to take a couple of steps back here because we're going to talk about some shipwrecks uh, today. That when shipwrecks happen in our own life, or even when we're watching shipwrecks happen in other people's lives, where do we go? How do we frame it? And how do we see that? Now, 
Can we just remind ourselves, uh, it's always a good place to start with, uh, with Adam and Eve, where we go, oh, isn't, it, isn't that an interesting thing that for Adam and Eve, the, there were consequences of the fortunate fall. They fell forward. They fell in a way that blessed their lives and blessed our lives, but also resulted that there were consequences that came from that. To Eve, Eve was told, uh, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. That's fourth children, not four children. Bring forth children. <laughs> um, now, I find it interesting that in this context, the word that's used for sorrow in the Bible occurs only three times. It's here. We're going to talk about it again in sorrow for Adam. But the other one, the other time that's used, the word, it, it's used for toil. That we're going to toil and we're going to sorrow. So if one of the intended meanings of sorrow was that it was going to be toil, that has some salience to me. That makes some sense. Because if we go back and say, Eve, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow. Any young mom that has had to deal with a two-year-old and a four-year-old and, you know, and struggling around, that's toil. That's diapers and tantrums, right? Um, I will greatly multiply thy toil and thy conception. You're going to have kids and you're going to have to toil at it. Uh, now, that toil... Uh, makes sense when we talk about Adam. Curse shall be the ground for thy sake, for thy sake, for your benefit. In, in sorrow, in toil, shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. By the sweat of thy brow, you're going to sweat, you're going to toil. Um, remember, in the Garden of Eden, as it's, at least as it's framed what we have, is that it was about fruit. And so we're just going to pick fruit and eat, and life is good. Now they're going to have to till the soil and toil in the soil, and that's going to be sorrow. Nothing like toiling in the soil on a hot day. Well, that's sweat on your brow, and he says that's sorrow. So in other words, what he's saying is, I'm going to put you in the world, and you're going to have to work. And part of the work is that sometimes it's unpleasant. That's sorrow. And we may not like how things turn out. Crops don't necessarily work out. Kids don't necessarily grow the way that uh, they're supposed to. Uh, we have sorrow in the fact that, uh, you know, we look at the rioting and things going on. And we sorrow. We're toiling in our hearts for the struggle that we're watching and the anger and pain in people. And so when you take a look at adversity, I know that we tend to kind of quickly say, well, and a lot of talks you'll hear on this is going to say, well, adversity comes in from several directions. And one is going to be uh, the, the evilness of others. And another one is going to be through our own stupidity. We did dumb things. Uh, we speed. We get a ticket. Uh, we have to pay that price and we sorrow. Um, uh, sometimes it, it comes uh, because we believe that maybe God is sending it to teach us a lesson. And then ultimately it's, it's about mortality. Mortality kind of stinks sometimes. Mortal bodies break down. Uh, we have illnesses and diseases and it's nobody's fault other than 
welcome to mortality. Mortality is, is kind of a rough and tumble place. It, it ain't heaven. Um, but I'm intrigued by the possibility that God sends pain to people doing well um, and to, to teach us lessons. Now, I'm the last one has the ability to say that God can't do that. Or, but I simply look at the scriptures and things that I'm seeing to say, does God do that? Or does God generally do that? Or does God want to send us pain and sorrow and adversity to teach us lessons? Or does mortality do a pretty good job of doing that all by itself just because it's mortality? But, but it has been stated in a number of places that maybe God does send it from time to time on good people. So this week I did my little Kevin search and I was trying to dig and find, seeing what I could discover here about when does God do that. And I wanted to give you just a couple of quick places that I found. Um, and you're certainly welcome to shoot stuff back at me even as we're, you're watching this if you want to... Uh, uh, comment in and say, yeah, we think about this one too, so please do make that a discussion. But here's a couple of examples that I found uh, and the explanation behind maybe is God sending tribulation on good people. There's a quote that we get out of the book of Mosiah. Mosiah 23, Nevertheless, the Lord seeth fit to chasten his people. Yea, he trieth their patience and their faith. So maybe it's not sorrow, but it's chastening. Well, chastening we tend to put with uh, as a corrective measure for sin, where we need correcting. Uh, and what he tends to be saying is the Lord seeth fit to chasten, so he's doing it. Uh, his people, his people, he trieth their patience. Now, let's take a step back here. First of all, what's the setting for this? Well, it's Alma and the people of Helam uh, in the wilderness, uh, and they've got away from King Noah, and they've been baptized at the waters of Noah. These are good people, Alma and his, and his people, and they're trying to make their way to Zarahemla and out of the land of Nephi and away from King Noah and the wicked priests, right? And, and so this is, this is Mormon speaking. This is Mormon's commentary. Uh, writing down as he's abridging and he's putting things together. And he goes, nevertheless, those of you who are reading it in the future, uh, the Lord saw fit to chasten Nephi and his people. He tried their patience and their faith. And then what does he say? He says, for behold, I will show unto you that they were brought into bondage. Remember, King Noah's wicked priests, they're going to catch him, tell us where Zarahemla is, we'll tell you, uh, and then we'll let you go. Oh, we decided not to let you go, we're going to hang on to you. Um, they were brought into bondage, and none could deliver them from that bondage, but the Lord their God, even the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of hosts. Sometimes, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of hosts. The God with armies. The God that can come in and destroy if he wants to. But I don't now, as we read this, I don't believe that any of us are going to look at this and say, we believe that 
that uh, Alma and his people were good people and God decided to uh, uh, tribalize them. That, that's a word that I made up. He's going to tribalize them. He's going to attack them. He's going to chasten them. They're good people. And he wanted to teach them patience and faith. So he inspired these wicked priests of Noah to come and attack and bring them into bondage. I don't think we would say that about the priests of Noah. I don't think we would say the Lord inspired Nebuchadnezzar to go in and kill and destroy and burn the temple in Jerusalem. He inspired uh, Augustus and, he and Titus to go in and kill and destroy and burn Jerusalem as, as the Romans did. But we know that sometimes chastening occurs because of our, uh, the things that we've done. And, and what did the Lord do in this case? Well, we know from the rest of the story that ultimately, yes, it came to pass that he did deliver them. But before he did, remember what he did? They were put under bondage. They were made with hard burdens they had to carry. And remember what happens? The burdens were made light. God comforted them that were in sorrow. He, he gave comfort to and made their burdens lighter. He didn't remove them. We think maybe for as long as around 17 years. This wasn't an immediate, the priests of Noah show up and two days later you're, we're going to show you the way to Zarahemla. It was years that Alma and his people were under this bondage. And during that time, God didn't remove the tribulation, but he did comfort them and make that, that burden easier to carry. Now, we have a similar experience when we're looking at, do we have any other cases where this happened? Why, yes, I'm glad you asked. Um, Joseph Smith, a uh, good man, hauled into Liberty Jail. And after months of being in jail, we get in March, remember he, he goes in over the, the, uh, kind of the Halloween weekend, the end of October, November, they end up in Richmond Jail and then ultimately in, in Liberty and they're there from about the middle of uh, November, December through to March and April before they were able to escape. Well, around March, he finally gets some letters from his people. He writes the letters out to the people. So we get sections 121, 122, 123. Joseph writing, and he's going to say, uh, I was struggling. Oh, God, where did you go? We know this one really well. My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity shall be but a small moment. He's thinking after four months, that was a long moment. Um, then if thou endure it well, notice he did, the Lord said it didn't immediately pull him out of the jail, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of hosts, who could have. Um, I would put the, Lord, the Lord's hosts against the guards in liberty any day uh, in a grudge match. That's not going to work, but it didn't happen. Uh, if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes. Thou art not yet as Job. Thy friends do not contend against thee, neither charge thee with transgression as they did with Job. Now, 
Job is the, is the ultimate tribulation guy, the patience of Job guy. And, and, we, and we tend to go there. Uh, and I apologize to uh, my class that's been with me for years. Uh, this is a discussion that we've had before, but if you'll be a little patient for those that are joining us in this setting, just to remind them what you and I have talked about, um, and, and just as a reminder for us as well. Remember when we start taking a look at Job and the question of Job, there's some things that we need to remember about Job and who he is. Job, actually, the book of Job in the Hebrew Bible is an ancient allegory. It's found in other ancient cultures as well as the Hebrew Bible. There's a version of it among the Assyrians. There was a, a, a version of that among the Hittites and the Canaanites. Everybody has their Job version. The, bo the book of Job is a wonderful allegory about a man uh, caught in between two forces. And so when we get the battle between God and the Satan, we're not going to believe for a second that God is negotiating with Lucifer. Uh, it's the Satan, and, we, and in another place we go into who that Satan was. We have a pretty good idea about who that is. Uh, but it's an allegory. And, and Job was anything but patient. Job did not go through his adversity and say, yes, kill my wife, kill my kids, kill my crops, give me boils, and God is really good. Uh, it really, most of Job, after the, about the first three or four chapters, which formed the frame of the book of this poem, this ancient poem about Job, really it's about, it centers on a man wanting to understand why his righteousness didn't prevent his horrible adversities. Lord, shouldn't my goodness have protected me from bad things? That was the way this was supposed to work. And most of it is, of the book of Job, is Job saying very, very clearly, God, please come down here and tell me what I did to deserve what I'm going through. Because I didn't do what you think I did. I'm, I've been good. Dang it. Now, come down and prove to me that I will prove to you that the things that you think I did, I did not do. And then we have these experiences where God does come down in the allegory and says, can you hold a mountain in your hands? I can. Can you hold a whale in your hands? I can. You don't understand my ways. And you don't understand the full picture. And yes, you are a good man. And I weep with you that you're going through your adversity. But I didn't cause it. Interestingly enough, the book of Job also contains the watchers, his friends, who at first sit shiva with him. That means you sit quietly and mourn with somebody who's going through an awful lot of pain. You sit shiva. Um, and then at time when this wasn't necessarily stopping and the, and the garbage kept coming onto Job, they kind of break out of the, the shiva iodine, uh, shivy doing, and they get concerned. Uh, the watchers, his friends, now go, if, 
if this could happen to Job, it could happen to me. And that's not really cool. So, Job, we would feel a whole lot better if you'd finally fess up to what you did. Because then our world drops back into focus and, and the way it's supposed to be. So, confess. Confess your sins. Remember, that's what the Lord is telling Joseph Smith uh, in section 121. They don't charge you with transgression like they did Job. Well, right. See, part of the, the book of Job is actually centering on the watchers. We're watching how they watch him and what they say and do in their watching. His friends wanting him to confess his sins because they, too, they were too worried about being able to control their own trials. One of the messages of the book of Job is our righteousness should pr protect us and prevent trials. And think about those times when we're struggling and we want answers and we're reading the scriptures more and, we are, and we're praying more and we're going to the temple more. And in the middle of all of that, there's a side of us that says, if I'm really, really good, this should stop more from coming. What did I do to bring on the cancer? And if I will, because tell me, and I will read the Book of Mormon 24 hours a day, if it will make the cancer go away. And if I can have, if I can fast, and have more people fast, and have more people fast, we can prevent and hold off trial. We can stiff arm away that pain through more temple work, through more. And we want to do that, and I and I get it. I, I understand that we want to be able to do that. Uh, in, in all honesty, brothers and sisters, it's such a human, normal human reaction to want to re control our pain. And if, from a spiritual standpoint, we want to be able to use our spiritual tools to hold pain at bay, I think that's the most normal of reactions. It it really is. We want to know what we did wrong so we can prevent it, and we just don't like pain. And nor should we, right? Okay. So I, I guess in, in in setting this up, as we dive into looking at Paul, um, I think our when we're taking a look at tribulation, let's look at it now with what happens with in a couple of instances that are in the scriptures, and then roll it into Paul and then maybe touch on what that means uh, for us, kind of going forward. Now, if, if let's remind ourselves. When we're looking in the New Testament, in essence, uh, I know we, we, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then we have the Acts of the Apostles. What we really have is, um, we, have, we really have kind of first Luke, uh, the writer of Luke, or writers of Luke, uh, I've always thought that there might be feminine voices in there. The writers of Luke wrote two books, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, which is kind of second Luke. And so let's first of all take a look at what happens in first Luke and watch what happens 
how they tie that and frame at the end of Second Luke and how they kind of come together here. So if we go to First Luke, the Gospel of Luke, uh, we see this, this story playing out at the end of First Luke. And we watch, we watch the story of Jesus unfolding. And what happens here is that we go from Jesus' last supper. He gathers his friends together and they have one last meal. And then what comes after that last supper is the suffering. And I, and I want you to notice something that's going to be very important here. Jesus in his suffering has two contacts with deity. One, when he's in Gethsemane, and an angel, uh, who we don't know who that is, though I have some guesses, uh, comes to comfort him. The second contact with deity will come on the cross at the height of his physical and emotional agony and he's going to watch a God who instead of is there for him actually retreats and we're going to see the confusion that goes with that for the Savior and and I want to save that a little bit because starting next week when we start talking about uh, the promises of the fathers I think we're going to be talking about uh, change and betrayal uh, about these promises as we start walking through the promises of the fathers and where they're rooted uh, in all of that but but Jesus at this as he's as he's having this experience he'll eat with his friends he will then suffer and have contact with and comforting from deity but notice the angel in the garden is there for him but doesn't drain the cup that that the mortal side of Jesus was saying is there another way to have this cup pass from me and the angel is basically saying no but I'm sorry you're going through this and I'm going to weep for you and maybe somehow make your burden lighter as it was for Alma so that suffering continues and then we know that that Jesus then descends below all things uh, and he's buried in death. Um, passes through all things, descends below all things. Ask Nephi. Nephi learned that. Then what happens? After three days, he rises out of that death place and he defeats death and he brings healing. And we get to see this whole descend, rise, come out, and come to a healing place, uh, and then start the fires of the gospel in his apostles, and then he sends them off into the, the world to go uh, continue this revolution uh, in the hearts and minds uh, and actions and behaviors of people all over the place, right under the noses of Rome. Now, I find it fascinating then that this is the story we get at the end of First Luke. Now watch the story. Watch this. This is kind of cool. Um, watch the story at the end of Second Luke. The end of Second Luke is the end of Acts of the Apostles. And, and let's set this up a little bit. Um, now, we know that um, as as 
Paul and his, his people, are, they're, they board a grain ship and they're going to sail uh, off to Rome. Now, the mistake that they make, the, the, the mistakes they make, is that they went at the wrong time of year. They went after the Feast of Tabernacles, which is late September, which puts them in the Mediterranean in the middle of October. Uh, when in the middle of the rainy season and there are winds that come down from the north and the the middle of uh, October is not a great time to be on the Mediterranean it, it just isn't um, and and so what they do is they sail down to Crete and then they go on the lee side of Crete on the on the other side now um, a few years ago, we led a, an LDS group uh, to Crete, and we stood at the top of the White Mountains. This is the top of White Mountains, and and I'm and I'm sure that you can't see the sea is out here, and this is the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and we're way up here at the top of the White Mountains. These White Mountains provided a protection from the the lee side of Crete and kind of would block some of these storms and winds that would come bearing down out of the Mediterranean and run up against the White Mountains. That's why you get fair havens on the lee side, on the bottom side, the south side of Crete, where Paul's captain took the ship on the other side. The problem was, is that uh, that was still the wrong time of the year, very little deep port harbors, not a lot going on on the fair in fair havens and the captain makes the decision to sail for Rome anyway in the middle of those October storms Paul says don't do it he says I'm doing it anyway I've got lots of grain that I can sell in Rome and off we go now that that's pretty uh, the, the amazing part about that is when we led when we led the, the LDS groups that we did to Crete, the, what we did is we then sailed from Crete to Malta. In, this, in essence, we took the same course that Paul and the grain ship are, are going to do to get to Rome. Now, when we did this, we ran into one of these October storms. We went in the middle of October. Uh, these storms came up, and so we were on a big cruise ship. And I have to tell you, the waves in this winter storm in the Mediterranean between Crete and Malta, those waves are pretty amazing. And, and, the, and this big cruise ship was being knocked about all over the place. And yes, there were barf bags hanging on the, at the bottom of the stairwells uh, because, and they were being used, I promise you. Uh, on top of that, this was an older cruise ship that had like a four-story set of windows at the back of the dining hall at the very back of the ship. And I remember very clearly sitting and eating dinner, and you could see the waves splashing up against these windows at the back of the cruise ship. They were big waves. That is a heck of a place and a bad place to be. And we kind of zigzagged around it as our captain tried to avoid this storm as much as we could. So, so we did some tacking back and forth to try and avoid that. And it was only moderately successful. I've been in that storm at that time of year. And I'm very sympathetic with what Paul and the boys went through. It, it would have been horrible. Um, 
And, and we know that ultimately then after they're battered, and, and think about this ship that has tons, literally tons of grain in it, and 270 some odd people battered all over the Mediterranean in this ship that's just chugging along, that they've the sailors have given up hope trying to steer it. It's just going, and they just are driven until they finally see Malta coming. And then, and and this is this is the backside of Malta, uh, where uh, where uh, Paul's ship crash landed uh, is just a few miles up uh, from from this area. But it gives you an idea of what they were running into. This is not a very hospitable place in the middle of a storm in October. Um, and it's being driven against this. And you remember the story in brief that Paul is going to say to them, guys, we're not going to make it. Uh, let's, let's do this. And it's interesting that Paul kind of takes charge in this ship that's being battered all over. And what he ends up doing is saying for Paul, they will have one last meal. They will eat. They have been eating. Who wants to eat and then throw it up? <laughs> so they have one last meal. Then they throw the grain overboard. Then they start dragging the anchors until they break and then drag another one. And the ship is literally breaking itself up against this kind of a, a stormy setting uh, in Malta. Now, so they have one last meal. Uh, the suffering begins, uh, the ship is breaking up, and it's every man for himself, and they all are tipped into the sea, uh, and, and away they go. Now, little point of reference here. For the Greeks, sailing was uh, part of what they did. It's part of what made Greece and, and uh, the civilization it was. For the Romans, same way. They used the Mediterranean as their freeway system and they were all over the place. For Jews and Hebrews, even though Paul had done a lot of studying, most Jews and Hebrews saw the sea as dark chaos. It's where the dark powers ruled. Um, the Leviathans, uh, the, the uh, monsters come from the deep, from the dark chaos of the sea and they would see it that way uh, and frame it that way and and isn't it interesting that Paul has a last meal they suffer and then he's buried deep in the sea and again this is now it's 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 framing it's duplicating first Luke at the end of second Luke we're, we're telling the story again with Paul as the center to this uh, the writers of Luke are writing a very, very Greek tragedy thing here, and they're doing it uh, masterfully. He's buried in the sea, kind of coming up out of death. They're then washed onto the shore. They have survived. They can't believe it. Then, then you remember that once he gets on there, they start the fire. They're burning it, and Paul, in the act of building the fire, grabs a, a, a stick, and he's putting it on there, and a snake comes out and bites his hand. And the and the and the Maltese people are like, oh, he's he's a bad guy. Uh, Satan's still trying to get him, you know. And he shakes the snake off and keeps on going. And they go, oh, he's a god. Nobody can kill him. Uh, in fact, he will go on from that. Not only did he save his life and the and his people, but he will then 
save the father of, of the guy that saved him. And then people will come on the island of Malta to Paul, and he will heal all of them. That's why there's a, a church dedicated to Paul on Malta, uh, because he came as a healer out of the sea, out of the depths, out of death, and healed them on the spot. Very Jesus-like uh, in, in how this is ultimately framed. Uh, I certainly don't think that's an accident, and it's masterfully done. Even the biting of the snake uh, in Jewish lore, you'd have and you talk about snakes, you have to go back to the the brazen serpent in the wilderness and the biting of the snakes, and that they would have to look on the brazen serpent to be saved. And those people on Malta certainly looked to Paul, and they were healed. The 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 parallel the the Luke writers are making sure that you see this even though we tend not to see it unless we're actually looking at it. And once you see it, I hope you never un unsee it, right? Um, some things we see in which we hadn't seen, this I see, I hope you see and go, yes, I've learned something here and now I see it because um, I think it's pretty powerful. Now, one last um, couple of uh, parallels uh, and, then, and then we will be done. I think ultimately what what this begs for us in our own shipwrecks in our life and the things that we struggle with is how do we get through this process, right? Um, so for each of us, if, if it happened for the Savior and it happened for Paul, it happens for us as well. That just like with Jesus and just like with Paul, there is us. And we're called upon uh, as we join the church or as we go through the conversion transformation process we're called to sacrifice our old life. We're called upon to finally put all of that behind us. We're called to sacrifice that life and be buried in baptism. Baptism is to be a death. We're to go down underneath the, the water and then we're supposed to emerge from that as new creatures in Christ with a transformed heart and a transformed drive. And, and we are duplicating the Jesus and Paul and be, we're being baptized in, buried in baptism and we, and we arise with a new life in Christ. And then what do we do? Well, we eat a meal. We partake of the sacrament. That's what Paul was trying to teach everybody in those house churches to arise and eat meals together that new creatures would do as they rise out of the death and chaos and darkness. Uh, and that literally is kind of where Paul is. Now, a couple last things here then. A mystery and then Paul's obituary. Um, the final mystery is where is Paul's death in the book of Luke? Where's Paul's death in, in Second Luke? It's not there. And most of us would want to know, well, what happened to Luke? All, or what happened to Paul? All we have, of course, is, is apocryphal stories from 1st and 2nd century writers about how Paul was beheaded in Rome. Probably that's what happened. But we don't have it. It's not available to us. It was left out. Deliberately? Don't know. But it's interesting that it's left undone. In other words, 
it would, the emphasis should be on Paul's life, not on his death. Now, 21st century people, we would really like to know about his death. And where? Was it in the palindrome? Uh, as is the history, uh, what, did he, uh, was he was head lopped off right after Peter and his wife were killed? That's another story. Uh, where exactly did it happen? We don't know. Uh, but let's finish, though, with Paul's obituary that he wrote. We should all get to write our own obituary, right? Um, here's Paul's own obituary that he, that he sends off to Timothy. For I am now ready to be offered, he says. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. I wasn't perfect. I had my moments. But I've tried to be like Christ as much as I know how to be, and He is transforming and changing me. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which in Rome that they'd place a crown of, uh, uh, of on the victor. And he's going to say, No, I, I have a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, not only me, but unto all them also that love His appearing. And he's, that's, that's a reference to us, those who will read it. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is going to kind of say, I have fit, I've fought a good fight. We don't need to know about his death. We just need to know about his life. Well, brothers and sisters, I bear you my testimony that that for Paul, who all the tribulation that he went through, we look at our own tribulation and we see our own struggles. We too have our own shipwrecks. And where those come from uh, becomes less important than allowing the God of the universe to comfort us and heal us and help us get through those shipwrecks. That's as it should be. That the Lord intends to comfort us and strengthen us and help us climb out of the sea and then uh, begin a new life. It's my hope and prayer, and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.